Welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. I'm your host, Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, take a minute to leave a review on iTunes and subscribe, or get in touch with me using email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. On with the show. One of the occupational hazards of being a podcaster is if far too easy to go down the rabbit hole. There's always something that you need to follow up, something interesting to look into. As the main narrative episodes of the show are finally putting the Napoleonic era to bed, ready to move into the Victorian age, I was looking around for topics for a mini-sode and came across a story that looked great. Had scandal, crazy characters, a heroine and Victorian superstars. It sounded great on paper. I was really excited and planning to tell you all the story of the woman who defied the conventions of the day to live an amazing life. I'll give you a rough outline of what I had originally planned and then tell you why this was wrong. Also, as we are going to be moving far more into the Victorian age proper this year, it is going to be my chance to illustrate an important lesson about how we view the past. I've also been incredibly frustrated at the lack of proper source materials on this. Some of the people have been almost airbrushed out of history. There's a whole book on the League of Nations that seems to have disappeared in a puff of smoke, although I've got wind of a copy in Australia, and I'm baffled why articles by sports experts on a world-famous sportsman can't even agree on what class degree he actually got. Problem seems to be that too many commentators are all referencing each other and ultimately coming back to an old encyclopedia article. Be warned, we are heading into murky waters here. Basically, I was going to do a show about a Victorian lady called Beatrice Sumner. At first glance, she has sprung from the pages of a novel, bursting with life. Born on the 12th of July, 1862, she was a young society girl seduced by an older banker called Charles Hoare, a married man who was 15 years older than her. In desperation, her parents had her made a ward of court and took a court order out against Hoare. Yet, when she was 21, she carried on the relationship with him. This was a huge scandal of the time. Imagine how people reacted. A girl of good family, seduced by a banker, a married man with five children of his own. She went on to open a naval training ship for young boys with Hoare and ran it for decades. She became religious and eventually married the gifted cricketer Charles Fry, known as C.B. Fry. He, in turn, was a brilliantly talented man and was 10 years younger than her. Now, as a podcaster, that's a really tempting story to tell. I could certainly have given you an interesting show that sat nicely with that story and would have given us all a warm glow. Young, fearless girl makes good and eventually marries a brilliant sportsman after decades of noble charity work. She overcomes immense hurdles with bravery and skill. It is almost a positive feminist story overcoming society's expectations and moving out of the shadow of an older abusive man. Take this quote from the National Trust website on her later life. Quote, Happily, Beattie retained her spirit and independence 
and she went on to live an incredible life. She spent time aboard the naval training ship Mercury, eventually married cricketing superstar C.B. Fry. Together, the pair became a famous society power couple, end quote. There are other online snippets that compare her to Victoria Beckham. That would sit pretty nicely with that narrative, wouldn't it? Mentions of the whole scandal are brief to the point of worthlessness. That's important, because if you just had a cursory look online and then saw the country house, you would really think that this was pure Downton Abbey or going to have a Disney happy ending. Certainly, it is understandable that the National Trust would mention her when they were outlining the history of Hatchlands Park House, her family home. The problem is that reality was a lot more complicated than this. Let's look at the full series of events and step away from an easy narrative, because if we just stuck to the quick sketch here, then we are going to be badly misled about the real events. We will be projecting our modern views and wishes back onto people in the past. Let's look at this properly. Charles Hoare was born in May 1847. He was heir to the banking fortune of C. Hawes & Co., which remains even today the fourth oldest bank in the world. He was also a keen amateur cricketer and the family were immensely wealthy. In 1867, Hoare married Margaret Short. He was about 30 when he met the 15-year-old Beattie in 1877. Beatrice Sumner was not just any girl. She was born on the 12th of July, 1862 at Hatchland's house. Her father, Arthur, was descended from the successful William Sumner of the East India Company. Her ancestry included English and Danish royalty, a provost of Cambridge University, and her uncle was Colonel Sir Nigel Kingscutt, who was groom-in-waiting to Queen Victoria herself, a controller of the stables, and equi-in-waiting to the Prince of Wales. Beatrice Sumner was, if not in the highest ranks of the aristocracy, certainly well up there in social standing. She was related to lords, dukes and earls, so was expected to have a glittering future. Unfortunately for the family, a constant rise in the family's social status meant an increase in expenses and debts. That might sound odd to us. Actually, it was fairly common to be given appointments that raised social status drastically, but which were unpaid and came with significant expenses that had to be paid out of the recipient's own pocket. It isn't surprising that some lucky recipients were less than thrilled about some of these privileges. Beattie was described as fierce, strong-willed, aggressive, not above punching someone who got in the way, and utterly fearless. Her family were often on the move to try to reduce living costs, and they shamefully neglected her education. She had almost no formal education at all. She was allowed to indulge her true passion of horse riding to the exclusion of anything else, and the parents utterly failed to actually guide the headstrong girl, basically giving her free rein, if you will forgive the pun. She became master of a popular hunt, and her striking beauty meant that her hunts were always very well attended. This was how she met Hoare. In many ways, they were apparently much alike. He too had been overindulged as a child, weakly parented, and allowed to do whatever he wanted without having any formal education. The key difference was that his family was astonishingly wealthy. He was a gifted horseman and keen on sports. Unfortunately, he enjoyed gambling too and lost considerable sums on horse races 
and in share dealing. The popular view during the scandal was that she very much aimed to seduce him. It is known that her father weakly warned Hoare off, but didn't exclude him from the social circle, and no one else seemed to either. I must caution you, finding a source for these intimate circumstances would be extremely hard. Even the private diaries of events like this are probably going to be slightly misleading. Certainly, she had a sexual relationship with Hoare. In 1879, he was caught in the 17-year-old girl's bedroom in circumstances he couldn't explain. Whilst it is risky to read too much into history, especially if we can't actually nail down precise sources, I think we can fairly safely infer in this instance that it was indeed a sexual encounter. This was too much. Her father and her uncle confronted the couple. Whilst the couple swore they would stop the affair, family clearly had doubts because they relocated Beatrice to Berkeley Castle to stay with relatives, the Fitzhardings. Incidentally, the Fitzhardings could trace their noble lineage back to Anglo-Saxon times, which is almost unique in the British aristocracy. The attempt at separating the couple didn't work. The lovers kept sending messages. Beatrice even staged a riding accident and had her injured self taken to nearby Horse House to get medical attention. And when we say nearby, we mean over four times as far away from the accident site as her parents' house was. Arthur Sumner now finally made protest to Hoare about the relationship with his daughter. This is pretty strange. Look at it from a Victorian parent's perspective. An older married man is having sexual relations with your daughter and has probably been doing so since she was a child. This man has children already and she could have had the world at her feet. Some of the finest families in the empire were available for marriage and now all her glittering prospects are shattered. Worse, what if the queen hears of the matter? Or worst of all, what if the queen is embarrassed by the matter? Could family members lose positions at court? How wide would the fallout actually be? Now that might seem trivial to us today, but as with all social conventions, they are only trivial from the outside. To give you an example, there's no biological reason why a Jewish person or a Muslim person cannot eat pork, but the religious rules against it are taken extremely seriously. Non-Muslims and non-Jews are very aware of these prohibitions and we respect them. We don't just arm wave them away. Victorian social conventions were often taken just as seriously. If we want to understand how and why people acted in the way they did, we must treat these conventions and people's views of them seriously. People didn't just break them on a whim or without being noticed. A particularly interesting question is why Arthur Sumner didn't take more positive action. Seems likely the fact that Hall was probably bailing him out of debt was a key reason. But even so, by the standards of the time, Arthur had every right as a gentleman to take pretty drastic action against Hall. Changes in the honour code in mid to late Victorian England and India meant that duelling was not really acceptable any longer. But in circumstances like this, well, perhaps it could have been an option. Certainly, the last duel in England had been in 1852, but that didn't mean it was so far removed from the realm of possibility that it couldn't have happened. Or if you are more of a Sherlock Holmes fan, perhaps Arthur should have arranged for an adventurer to remove the problem. 
lacking either the will or the ability to do anything then, led to the attempt by her family to get Beatrice made a ward of court in 1881 and to have Hall imprisoned. The court refused to imprison him, but did attempt to enforce a separation. Soon after this, the Sumner's debts began to catch up with them. Hall went from enemy to bailing them out of debt. Still, Hall briefly upheld the court order, and Beatrice was sent to Germany accompany her other uncle, Fitzharding Kingscote. Your view on these events might now be down to framing. Put it this way, imagine you are a Hollywood director. You've heard about this, and you think it sounds like a cracking period drama, but how to frame it? You could make it a real love story. Two talented, fearless people who are defying conventions, family, and the rule of law itself to be together. Soulmates who should have met in a better time and place. In that framing, you will set the family as the villains and probably cast an unsympathetic wife for Hall. He is a tragic figure, trapped and brought to life by his new love, while she is perhaps a bit like Rose in the film Titanic, reaching out from high society for love. Alternatively, you could frame this as a sad drama, a brilliant young girl ruined by an older predator. Perhaps cast Anthony Hopkins as the loving but helpless father. There can be speeches about the foolishness of the young heart, perhaps a wise lawyer battling to protect the innocent girl from a predatory monster. If you are looking at history properly, you can't do that. You can't do either of those things. You have to step away and stick to what actually happened, the causes and the effects. You can't decide that it'll fit one story or another or try to shape it to fit your own values and create a narrative that you prefer. If you do that, you lose the objectivity and understanding. You can only draw conclusions based on the evidence available. Eventually, Beatrice became a legal adult and nothing was going to stop her being with Hall. She was soon living with him and they had a daughter named Sybil, despite his marriage. This was a bombshell that couldn't be avoided or hushed up. Legally, no one could stop them living together, perhaps, but in Victorian England, there was no way a society scandal like this would go unnoticed or unpunished. The much-respected and prized hunt where the couple had met tried to expel Hall. This would have been a devastating social slap in the face, but the attempt was blocked by local farmers who feared the loss of Hall meant the loss of money to the local economy during a difficult economic period. In desperation, members of the family brought them before the Court of Chancery in 1885 for breaching the court order. A law report in the New York Times, published the 18th of March 1885, gives us some better insight into the scandal. Quote, An English banker in trouble. London, March 17. In the Chancery Division of the Supreme Court today, an argument was heard on a motion to commit Charles Hoare of the banking firm Messrs Hoare & Co. prison for contempt of court because in 1882 he received letters from Beatrice Sumner, who was then a ward chancery, despite an interdiction of the court. The evidence presented showed that Hoare, a married man, paid attention to Miss Sumner when she had barely left the nursery. Her father interfered and obtaining an injunction prohibiting Hoare from continuing his attentions to the girl. This order was, however, disobeyed by the defendant. Notice was given today for the committal of Lady Cholmondeley for infringing the injunction by forwarding letters from this Sumner 
to Hoare and receiving replies from him and taking them to Miss Sumner. When Miss Sumner received her majority, she went to live with Hoare as his wife and the union resulted in a child. Hoare advanced money to the father, Captain Sumner, the sum of £3,000 to save him from ruin. He also settled sums of money on Miss Sumner and the child. The case was adjourned for further hearing. End quote. Uncle Fitz realised that he would also be in trouble for allowing communications when Beatrice was under his care whilst the injunction was in force. He swore out a lengthy statement. Other witnesses were also found. Things were looking bleak for Hoare. He wrote a lengthy statement in his own defence, furiously blaming Fitz for everything. Uncle Fitz decided these things were better at a distance and vanished. Hoare, Beatrice, both her parents, absent Uncle Fitz and Lady Chilmondley were all in the firing line. As Fitz was connected to the royal household, the implications were enormous. Best lawyers were involved and the Attorney General too. The press was circling and it would come down to the decision of the judge, Mr Justice Chitty. Things looked grim indeed for the defendants. Evidence was heavily against Hall and the potential of incurring royal wrath looked inevitable. Strangely though, the tactic of blaming everything on Uncle Fitz actually worked. It seems Judge couldn't believe that a woman would behave in the way Fitz had described, so it was clear to him that Fitz was obviously a rotter, who was clearly lying. How could one take the word of a man who would dishonour his niece like that? Events in Hall's favour were magnified, and events where he clearly breached the order were just ignored. Poor Lady Tremundley was criticised, but Hoare avoided prison. He was let off with just having to pay costs. To a man of his enormous wealth, these were trivial. Better still for him. Press turned on poor Colonel Sir Nigel Kingscote, blaming him for the scandal being brought to court. I know some listeners might instantly jump to the conclusion the judge was bribed or it was affixed by the upper classes to avoid further scandal. Those are fair questions to ask, but to answer them would require detailed study and plenty of evidence. As I said, we shouldn't start assuming things to suit our presumptions or prejudices. I've not been able to confirm which Mr Justice Chitty this judge was, but I think based on the dates, it must have been Sir Joseph William Chitty. He was known to be a good judge with the nickname Mr Justice Chatty for his interruptions of counsel, he was eventually elevated to the Court of Appeal. I think it is therefore unlikely that there was real corruption here, but who knows, we can't maybe rule it out ever. This was all pretty scandalous, and frankly, even today, it would be fodder for tabloid newspapers and serious clickbait. Her mortified parents fled overseas, Hoare was forced out of public life, and the couple went to live on the Isle of Wight for several years to escape the limelight. There's a lot to unpack here. Age gaps in relationships can always be controversial, even today. In the Victorian era, this was even more complicated. In some areas, women would routinely marry older men during the Victorian era. This was considered a smart move for both. Mortality rates in childbirth could leave a lot of men widowed, as women often died. For them, the attractions of a young bride were obvious. Companionship, an attractive partner, the stable marriage that the Victorians prized, a supposed health, vigour and innocence, and 
the many benefits of marriage to a Victorian man. Cooking, cleaning, washing, etc. The family was of lower or lower middle class status. For upper class or wealthy men, the younger bride might have useful social connections or family wealth. And a younger bride brought with her the promise of increased fertility and more children. For the young bride, there were clear benefits too. The older man brought experience, not just sexual experience, although actually this was considered extremely valuable to the Victorian married couple, where a sexually proficient man was expected to be able to bring a female partner to orgasm to ensure conception. But also it brought valuable life experience in an era where mistakes could be fatal. The man might well have an established reputation which could open many doors for his wife socially and for the ambitious woman professionally. Many clever, talented women used their husband's position and influence as building blocks to carve out their own place in the world, establishing hospitals, charities, foundations or acquiring land and running business empires in all but name. The older man also brought a promise of greater reliability than some younger men who might not live up to their earlier promise. In the Victorian era, a marriage or long-term partnership could be the key to a successful life and was sometimes literally the only safety net in a very, very cruel world. A man like Hoare, with a substantial fortunes and connections, might have been a high prize, but he was already married. The scandal-hit couple couldn't take part in their beloved hunts any longer. So Beattie did something else. In 1885, she and Hoare founded the training ship Mercury. This was a naval training ship and Beattie became the main superintendent. She pushed herself hard physically, rowing, climbing masts, learning all the nautical skills and swimming in the icy water with trainees. This was a position of authority and all of this was incredibly unusual for a Victorian woman, especially in an all-male institution. In 1897, both Hoare and Beattie became increasingly religious. This started to drive them apart, especially as Beatrice began to identify with some of Wagner's more unpleasant philosophies about suffering and purity. The training ship itself was run by her with a rod, and I mean that literally. She turned it into a living hell for the children she was in charge of. Everything was watched and recorded, even the boys' bowel movements. She held a strong religious belief that redemption was only possible through suffering. In one notorious incident, she instructed former Navy boatswain Sharky Ward to beat a boy over a gun barrel. The boy was so badly hurt after 12 lashes, took a month to recover. Then, Beatty had the punishment continue to the full 24 lashes, saying over and over to Sharky, quote, make him bleed, boy make him bleed, end quote. This was doubling the punishment that the Royal Navy had ever allowed for children under 18, and it wasn't delivered with the light cane that the Navy had used. Royal Navy guidelines were that the light cane was supposed to leave the recipient unable to sit down without pain for the first day and to hurt for up to two weeks. Hospitalising a child for a month was well beyond what the Navy allowed. Indeed, it is notable that peacetime flogging was banned in the US Navy in 1850 and in the Royal Navy in 1881. 
the heavy birch had been replaced by the lighter cane, which was still popular training ships, but Beatrice seems to have been excessively enthusiastic. She ran the training ship until 1946. So that National Trust quote about her spending time on board the ship is not really accurate. She was in charge of it. Fatefully, Beatty and Hoare invited the sporting superstar, Charles Fry, to visit the T.S. Mercury. And in 1898, 36-year-old Beatty married the brilliant cricketer, C.B. Fry, also known as the Almighty. Fry himself was a remarkable man by any standards. When people called him brilliant, they weren't just talking about cricket. Born in Croydon, he was highly intelligent and had a gift for languages. He got a scholarship to Oxford, where he got first-class degree in Latin and ancient Greek. Or at least some sources say first-class. Others list it as a barely scraped fourth-class as a result of him suffering a nervous breakdown caused by debt. A shock to everyone who felt he was the most brilliant student at the university. I can confirm that I've looked into this in quite a lot of detail and eventually spoke to the truly wonderful and always helpful Bodleian Library to get the correct answer, which according to them is, quote, Fry matriculated, i.e. was admitted to the university from Wadham College on the 20th of October 1891. According to the Oxford Historical Register 1220 to 1900, which includes an alphabetical register of honours, Charles Fry was awarded first class honours in classical moderations in 1893 before finally obtaining the degree of BA with fourth class honours in classics in 1895. Presumably, this is where the confusion has arisen. Honours moderations or mods are the first year university or in the case of classics second year exams. They are the first of the two public examinations known as first public examination towards the degree of BA and the results are classified as firsts, seconds, etc. So although Fry achieved first class honours results for his honour moderations, his final degree of BA was awarded fourth class honours in classics, end quote. So the Wikipedia entry of fourth class honours is correct. Any encyclopedia or sports article referring to a first class degree is wrong or at the very least being extremely sloppy. It is interesting to note that as a result of his nervous breakdown, he hadn't read anything for weeks in the run-up to his finals. Imagine that, having a nervous breakdown, not being able to do any preparatory reading, and still being good enough to get a degree from Oxford. This was a huge achievement by any measure, especially as the classics were revered by many Victorians, and were regarded as the pinnacle of educational achievement. He was certainly proficient enough in the ancient languages to write poems in both. He played football and cricket at an international level for England. He famously opened a match against Australia, partnered with W.C. Grace. His record of scoring six first-class centuries in successive innings in 1901 is an unbroken record in cricket to this day. He also played rugby, did fishing, boxing, swimming and athletics. He held a world long jump record while smoking cigars between goes. It was an event he had never trained for and had no experience of. He just decided to do it one day. The record would stand for 21 years. After university, he taught Charterhouse for a period, then ran his own magazine. Incidentally, he wasn't paid for his sporting career, 
He was an amateur. He made his money from his journalism. It could certainly be argued that he was perhaps the greatest all-round sportsman who has ever lived. To be world-class in one sport is beyond the reach of most people. To do it in two and have nearly a dozen others in your back pocket almost beggars belief. He was an advocate of women's cricket, a gifted writer, and a talented journalist. His list of published books is pretty lengthy, and he probably ghostwrote a number more for his fellow sportsmen who were less gifted at writing. He was regarded as looking like a Greek god. You've heard someone say that someone is the total package? Well, Charles Fry absolutely was. He was friends with Kipling, Churchill, and numerous others. He was friends and cricket batting partner with the fellow cricketing legend, the Indian prince, Ranjit Sinja. Technical disclaimer, Ranjit Sinji had no right to call himself prince. He was the son of a poor farmer, but he managed to get away with it. It was a sporting nickname that stuck. The two of them remain contenders for the greatest pair of batsmen in the history of cricket. Ranjit Sinji took Fry on as his speechwriter at the League of Nations. Fry became the technical assistant to Prince Ranjit Sinja and wrote the technical textbook for the organisation, a key book of the League of Nations. This led to him meeting representatives from Albania who tried to persuade him to become Charles III of Albania. He declined as he felt his income was too low. This might have been a practical joke by the prince, but it might equally have been genuine. He stood for a seat as an MP in 1922 as a Liberal, losing by only 4,785 votes. Frankly, if he had declared he was really Batman, well, it wouldn't have been impossible. If you want to know something that blows my mind, you can actually go to YouTube and see a video of Fry batting in 1901, a Victorian sporting hero, and you can actually watch him play. That's incredible. When he was finally in his old age, he was reputedly sad that he'd never really fulfilled his potential. That's a frightening thought. Either it shows that even the highest achievers amongst us sometimes lack self-confidence, or that he had some seriously big plans he never mentioned. Perhaps he did feel if he had been elected as an MP, he would have been Prime Minister. Who knows? Also, if you think that Fry's life is already sounding a bit unbelievable, you should look at Prince Ranjit Singes, who converted that verbal nickname of Prince to being a factually accurate title, becoming a ruler in India, fighting in World War I, being partially responsible for getting the Italians to remove their occupation of Corfu, getting mixed up in assassination plots, and generally living a life that if we saw it on screen, we'd call bullshit. Whatever else the people of the Victorian era did, they certainly did it in glorious technicolour. Unfortunately for everyone, but especially Fry, he married Beatrice. People have long debated the reasons why such unsuitable people got together. Was it money? After all, Beattie was still Hoare's mistress, even though they were living apart at this stage. So had Hoare encouraged it to try and finalise the break? Was it a scam? Fry trying to get in with Hoare's money and Beatrice's title? Debate has raged. Fry's biographer feels that the evidence from letters and the timing of the marriage show that it was a hasty, spur-of-the-moment marriage motivated by love. It is also well-established that Beatrice made Fry miserable. She was known to be cruel and domineering to him. Fry was known to be emotionally fragile. Why did he marry her? It's no exaggeration to say that 
as a superstar of the time, he could have had his pick of women, he would bitterly regret his choice. There's an interesting quote in a David Robinson ESPN article that sums it up. Quote, his wife made him thoroughly miserable. He tried to stay away from her as much as possible. His daughter-in-law said, I should think anyone would have a breakdown married to her. His son is on record as saying in 1984, my mother ruined my father's life. Now, of course, every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way, but it is clear that Fry was the victim of an abusive marriage. It is well established that she made Fry miserable. She was known to be cruel and domineering, end quote. Fry was driven to a mental breakdown in the 1920s, becoming convinced that he was the victim of evil magic spells cast by Indians, including his lifelong friend, Prince Rajatsinja. He had eccentric periods for the rest of his life and was clearly left mentally fragile. He would eventually meet Hitler and von Ribbentrop, and he tried to persuade them to take up cricket, and he was impressed by the Hitler Youth, some of whom attended the T.S. Mercury. This has all turned out to be a very different series of events to that easy narrative we started with, hasn't it? I wanted to remind you how easy it is to give a false picture of events by careful phrasing, to make them fit the story that sounds better, or by omitting key facts to smooth over some of the rough edges. Hollywood does it all the time. Now that's fine, as long as you remember that films and TV, like Braveheart, The Patriot, Churchill, The Crown, Victoria and Albert, and many others, are just giving you a tailored viewpoint. They are works of fiction, dressed up in historical clothes. It's also an easy habit for podcasters to fall into. Professional historians have much less of a problem as they usually have more time to go into depth and put things into full perspective, but also because they challenge themselves and are challenged by their professional colleagues. Is this important for our podcast? Yes, it is important because we are going to be dealing with a lot of very complicated people, people who were regarded as complicated even in their own age, let alone if we try to add our historical baggage to them. Cecil Rhodes, for instance, is an extremely complicated person to look at. If we are going to do the depth that this podcast aims to give you, we need to be careful about setting up our expectations in advance. This show isn't just going to skip briefly through Queen Victoria's life or skim the surface, but that means going into a lot of depth, accepting the journey ahead of us will be a long and fascinating one. Thank you, everyone. Okay, thanks for listening today. I'm now going to get busy on the next show. Don't forget to take a minute to subscribe or leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with me via email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Catch me on Twitter at ageofvictoria or via Facebook if you've got any questions or if you just want to chat. Goodbye, and I bid you adieu until next time.